Hey, welcome to the Harusa Podcast. On today's episode, California bans singing in synagogues, but they're not the first to do so. We explore the two types of song in Judaism and how the Torah's moralizing of relationships turned out to be the most transformative idea in all of social history. I'm Moshe Shomron. Thank you for joining me in this exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. The Supreme Court of the United States has stepped up against the disparate treatment of religious and spiritual gatherings, uh, this time in California. First time was in New York. Some in California and California had banned all indoor gatherings when it comes to spiritual and religious purposes. Indoor gatherings were fine and are permitted for shopping malls, salons, terminals, etc. Uh, but they had banned specifically religious and spiritual institutions and the Supreme Court has overturned this uh this unreasonable ban targeting religious institutions of course this makes absolute sense Re- regardless of whether it's a general idea at all to have anything indoor that's uh another conversation but if you're going to allow indoor say indoor dining then there's no reason from a logical perspective why indoor dining should be allowed but indoor Davening in a shul should not be allowed. I know my synagogue here that I go to in Maryland initially had come under a ban that they were not allowed to hold any services indoors. At the same time, restaurants were allowed to have, first it was 25% capacity, then 50% capacity. So what the rabbi did is he reapplied because the shul has a commercial kitchen that they use sometimes for a kiddush or local events so they resubmitted themselves instead of being classified as a synagogue as a restaurant and said okay now we're a restaurant and you know maybe we'll have some healthy snacks after services to hand out we'll have some we have some coffee um so therefore now we can have indoor capacity and that's is actually what happened which on the face of it is just uh ridiculous and that's what the supreme court uh is referencing here of course, each person should decide based on their own circumstances and their own scenarios um, what exactly, how to conduct themselves. Just because something is permitted and is legal doesn't make it the right thing to do. And just because something is illegal doesn't make it the wrong thing to do. As we talked about by the vaccine distributions and the priorities there, etc. Back in the episode, Fried Matzimals and Ethical Distribution. Now, what's very interesting is, is that part of the ruling in the Supreme Court, they maintained a ban on singing in the shuls. So even though the gathering itself is now permitted under safe conditions, but singing is banned. Now, avid listeners of the Chavrusa will likely remember This is not the first time in history that a ban was specifically placed on singing, at least in the Jewish context, in the synagogues. 
for there was that story of Rav Aaron of Karlin, Rav Aaron of Karlin, who was innovating in the terms of the atmosphere and shuls. He wanted it that you walk into the shul and it feels alive, it feels real. It's it's the emotion is, is palpable. Avodashabalev, that feel is supposed to be an emotional, emotive experience that evokes feelings and very much instituted a culture within his following. He was a big Hasidic rabbi in Karlin and Stalin, I believe it's was in Russia. And they're known for till today they're exuberant and spontaneous davening. Super loud. You walk into Stalin davening. It's, the place is on fire. Got to check it out if you're nearby any Stalin branch in New York or Israel, etc. Now, at the time, it wasn't as universally accepted. People were frowning upon it. First of all, just in general, people, innovation always uh, makes people a little guarded. And number two is because they felt that you know, it should be a more serious thing. It should be more decorum. Everybody's, you know, quiet voices and a library type feel. It should feel the somberness and the seriousness and the magnitude of the moment that you're convening, having an actual conversation with Kaddish Baruch Hu, with the God Almighty, Tashab. Shab's a more seriousness. And, and that was the the two sides of the coin here. And he's visiting and he's traveling and he gets to town and they say, you know, you can't come. You can't come to our place. You can't come to our show. We have a different style. You're going to ruin the decorum. And he says, I, I want to join. I want to join the community. I want to partake in the minion. I want to come down. I'll agree. I won't sing. And they say, fine, you could come. You come to show, but you can't sing, which is exactly the Supreme Court uh, echo here. You can come to show, but you can't sing. So what does he do? He goes to show. And he starts very uh, modest in his place, saying the words very softly. And then he gets up to the beginning of Pesuket de Zimra. The verses of song that has been suggested in, back in the Kharusa podcast in that episode. One of the it's five ideas of how to revitalize Minyan, to restructure the way services are conducted today. One of them was we need to reclaim Pesuket de Zimra. Pesuket de Zimra is supposed to be an emotive singing chapters of the song. And the typical experience today is just lip service and you mutter through it. So we need to reclaim it with song and joy. And he starts, he gets up to Baruch Sha'amar Vahaya, Ayla, the source of all blessing that's spoken to existence of the world. And he's bursts out and dance and song and he's dancing and singing he's ecstatic he reached that point that he bubbled to the front and the rabbi of the shul is quiet and the place is in shock this was the deal no singing and the rabbi lets it go and he says I always thought that singing was this shtick it was this like external mode to try to get people into it to you know uh, liven things up but I saw how real it is how it burst through. He couldn't contain it anymore. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. You can ban that. You can't ban that emotion. The emotion is just freeing. That's the freedom. By the way, this could answer a very interesting contradiction. Or on the surface, it seems like a stira, like a contradiction. On one hand, the Jewish people sang a song 
after the splitting of the sea. One of the most epic compositions in, in world history in music, in prose. A beautiful song composed by Moshe and the Jewish people right after the splitting of the sea. And we sit, recite it every day till today during the morning services on the commemoration of the event. It happened one week after the Exodus, um, which is the last day of the Pesach holiday. We celebrate Pesach for seven days, eight in, outside of Israel. And the question is, so fine, so the singing is great, the song is great. Now, if you look in the Talmud, the Talmud says that we don't recite the full halal, halal, another collection of songs of praise and, and, and dance. We don't recite halal on this day, on the commemoration of the event, because the Egyptians died on that day. And Hashem looks at it and says, how could you sing when my creatures, when my creations are dying at sea? People are suffering. How could you sing? And because of that, he stopped the angels were joined the Jewish people in song and he stopped the angels and said, you guys can't sing. But the Jewish people kept singing. Not only that, we still uh, sing it every day. But on the commemoration of the event, we don't go all out. We don't sing the full hall. Why is that? Is it a good thing to sing? Is it not a good thing to sing? The, the idea is, is that there's two levels of singing. Number one is when you think about it. You think, you know, sit down. Hmm, it's a good idea. Let's sing a song now. Let's have a come to, you know, it's good timing for a song. Good interlude. Good commercial break. 10 second station identification. Let's sing a song. Then there's the type of experience when you're, you're full of the emotion and it's overtaking you. It's overwhelming you that you jump out in song. When you're at a wedding and you get caught up in the in the experience and the music and you just want to sing. Or sometimes in a more sorrowful song when you're overwhelmed by, by what's going on and you just want to express that feeling into into song. That's Shira. Shira is that spontaneous music as opposed to Zimra, which is more calculated, thought out, expressed. That's the type of song the angels. The angels don't have those spontaneous feelings they don't have the emotions the human emotion and therefore their song had to be put to a stop but reviring of carlitter that singing the singing that comes so spontaneous and so natural has the most beautiful thing and that's perhaps a, a deeper understanding in the king david that king david was criticized for calling the torah zmirot zmirot shabbat zmirot is highly chukacha it's a verse in psalms 119 he says, Hashem, your statutes, your directives to me are, are zmirot, your songs. And he was critiqued for that. Minimizing calling it a song is so much more than just a song. Yeah, on the other hand, you look at the Torah itself. The Torah says, Write down, Hashem tells Moshe, write down this shira. It's the last of the 613. It's the Mr. Torah to save her Torah. Write down a Torah, the Torah itself is called a Shira. So, so how is King David criticized for calling it a song? That's the difference. Is a Shira and a Zimra. A Shira of something that's so authentic and so so real that it's expressed through song. And Zmira is like Zmira Shabbos, that it's more calculated, it's written out. You decide, okay, let's sing a song. Let's sing it now. Now there's ways to combine it too. You can take a Zmira of Shabbos and make it a Shira, make it spontaneous. But that's the general idea is to go for that authentic song, the, the part of the song that's so real, it's so raw. 
It doesn't have to be a symphony and every single note is exactly on key and tune. And it's okay, it's okay to be a little off key, a little off tune, a little off pace. Because it's not about the musical experience. I'm not judging the aesthetic of the music, but it's about the emotion, the heart, the realness. And I think this is a good uh, litmus test, I think, uh, come, let's say, high holidays, cantor. The higher cantors, people today go to cantorial school, things like that. Perhaps, instead of judging by the quality of their voice and their music and their range, they could somehow select, prioritize people based on their heart, their feeling, the emotion that they put into it. Continuing with a letter in the scroll, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, today's chapter, chapter 7, Covenantal Morality. So we established yesterday the life paradigm shifting idea, the incredible revolution that Judaism brought into the world then and is still revolutionary and not fully appreciated today not, or not fully actualized today. And that is the dignity of the individual, the individual not relative to the hierarchies, the statuses, the classes that society typically operates in, but the individual in direct connection and relation to their own worth and to their own relationship with Hashem in its most authentic way. That idea that each person, that every single human in the world, man, woman, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity, intelligence, whatever it is, every single person has that dignity. And check out more in yesterday's episode for the the wide-ranging ramifications and depth of that. And continuing on that today, once you internalize that, that individual and, and that power of that idea that it brought into the world and introduced, is a very stunning thing. You look in the first chapter in the Torah, and everything Hashem is creating, Torah says, Hashem says he sees it and it is good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. With each other, as you look in the natural world, I think of the universe, it's unbelievable. The quantum physics and the the very, very ingredients of the world. You see water, you see the chemistry and the biology of the world is it's tight, tight. This is good. This is uh, it's unbelievable. And one thing is light tight. One thing is not good. What's not good comes at you like a off key note while you're sitting there in the middle of Pesuket Zimra singing. <laughs> now it's not good. What's not good? Light tight. levado. It is not good for man to be alone. And here we are again at a at a massive turning point in the human story. Because once you have the individual, something else makes its appearance. Solitude. Loneliness. And with that comes the search for relationship. Now to us, the, the stories of the Torah are very familiar. But if you think about the context and the age to which they are set, they're very utterly unique and strange. Because the literature of the time, they all deal with 
cosmic themes, wars of the gods, creation, the universe, secrets of the storm, the sun. The subjects of the Torah in Bereshis are for the first time through ordinary human beings in ordinary situations. The characters are heroes of everyday situations. And the idea here that the Torah is emphasizing is that morality is not about kings and gods, but it's the here and now in your personal relationships, in the texture of your everyday life. And moving on, the Torah will talk about the in the book of Exodus, it will tell the story of the nation, the birth of Israel as a people. But by prefacing it with the stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs, the Torah is making a fundamental assertion and declaration. Nations are born of individuals. And it's not the other way around. It's not that individuals are born out of nations. The way we order our private lives, our personal lives, that determines eventually the society that we're able to create in the world. That's really the whole story of the Torah. That before you get to the societal implementations and the moralization of power, which ends up being one of the most stunning revolutions that Judaism eventually undertakes. The idea that even rulers are bound by rules. But before that, another idea had to first be formed. And that's the moralization of relationships. The moralization of the family unit. And that's the all the stories in Bereshus. They're a prelude to everything else. They're a set of themes and variations on family. You have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and his sons, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, his wives, his children. None of these stories are smooth. There's tensions between husbands, wives, parents, children, sibling rivalry. Not the slightest attempt in the to romanticize the family bond. It's real. Relationships are, are, are difficult, even for these uh, patriarchs and matriarchs. But they all take place, all these relationships take place within a moral context. The family is a place within which even we, even if we struggle with others and ourselves, we learn what it is to be human. What follows in the Torah is a recurrent theme on relationships. All the stories in Bereshus and Genesis, all the stories are defining the boundaries of a moral relationship. It's moralizing intimacy it's moralizing marriage you you look at the theme anytime somebody steps out of the home step out of their family unit disaster ends up striking avram with sarah sarah is abducted and taken by egypt again they go down to uh because of the famine they they leave um their homeland they leave israel again She's abducted by Abimelech. Same things happens with Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca's abducted. The same thing occurs when the visitors in Sodom, they're visiting Lot, they're visitors, they're outside of their home, and the locals all swarm on them to sodomize them. That's where the name sodomy comes from. It was conferred on the English language. Dina walks outside her home and she's abducted and raped. Joseph is outside of the home, and the wife of Potiphar nearly succeeds in seduce, seducing and, and bringing him outside of that moralized relationship. And that's the 
critical moment, or this is the critical moment in the journey of, of mankind in the story. It's the radical idea that moral relationships are the basis of a free society. Because the entire complex of society, a civilization, depends on groups of individuals working together. But this can only work if it depends on trust, if there's trust between the people. Not if there's power. If there's power, that's not a real relationship. Whether it's physical, economic, political, it's not free. My will will prevail over and at the expense of yours, you're a means to my end. And that fails the Torah test of, am I treating this person in the image of God? Am I treating them as an individual? And it also doesn't redeem you from that sense of solitude. Because if you're just an extension of me, I'm still alone. And the idea that a relationship is the basis of a moral society, a trusting relationship, is what's being learned throughout the stories of the Torah. That every single time, the Jewish people stepped outside of their boundaries. They encounter a world of sexual immorality, of murder, of abduction, of injustice. Learning in the process that a real relationship is when you're respecting the other person in their own right, not seeing them as a means to your own end, to your own pleasure. Relating to people with freedom and dignity. Not to just simply use the person. And that reflects and extends to all other relationships. And if you think about circumcision, the story with Abraham and the whole concept of circumcision within this context. I've been reminded specifically about the binding force of the moral obligation in terms of sexuality. I'm thinking about it. This actually brings up a very interesting exposure and in, uh, in the problem in widespread pornography use. And that is that, by definition, the, the people are now being viewed as just a means to an end. It's a means to my own self-pleasure. And then that ends up degrading or minimizing how I would view freedom and dignity of people and are they persons at their own right? Instead of debating pornography in terms of, is it the right moral thing for me to do? Is it not the right moral thing to do in terms of self-discipline and and um, pleasure and relating to life of pleasure and how it fits into a greater perspective of pleasure in Judaism and which contexts and which which methods will bring you the ultimate longest lasting sense of satisfaction and contentment but just in this angle in that what's happening is when a person watches pornography is that they're viewing those people as a means to an end as a means to the end of their own pleasure it goes to the contrary of what the entire moralizing institution of relationships is meant to bring us to see the dignity in somebody else to see them as a person in their own right with their own self-worth. Now, how do you actually do this? How do you create a relationship that's based on trust and not based on power? And the idea that Torah gives not only stunning in its originality, but vast in its implications, is that it's done through the power of words. Through the powers of words. There's a book um, written by 
J.L. Austin, how to do things with words. He terms this phrase performative utterances. A performative utterance. In uh, Talmudic jargon, this would be called a chalos. Something that you say that has a performance that creates something. Language creates something that did not exist before. So, for example, if you promise to do something, you create an obligation, a neder in the Torah's eyes. It's not just a promise that you said you'll do something. It actually creates a new obligation. When somebody standing under the chuppah says, you are betrothed to me, what's happening there is, is a creation. There's something new here. It's transformative. It's a relationship of, of marriage. And this, this idea that words have power, no less than yesterday's idea of the birth of the individual. It's a critical moment in, in the journey of humanity. It's the radical idea that the relationships and the moral relationships is based on trust, depends on trust. Trust means you give your word and you keep it. It's the whole idea of a bris, of a covenant. What a covenant is, is when two free agents respecting each other's freedom, bind themselves by mutual promise to work together, to be loyal to one another, to achieve together what you can't achieve alone. And this is what we call in Hebrew, emunah. This is emunah. It's not simply faith, but it's faithfulness. It's loyalty. You're keeping your promise. You're keeping your word. And to this very day, a Torah lifestyle is one of family. It's one built on family. It's based on family. The most important events happen in the home, Shabbat, the holidays, education, kashrut, everything's happening in the home. There's nothing more Jewish than a Friday night, a Shabbos meal, a su'udah, the candles lighting, the challah, the grapes, the kiddush, the singing, the guests, the children. That idea that the divine presence is not in cathedrals and palaces, but is in ordinary homes, the ordinary people. So Torah To do justice to the power, you have to realize that what this is saying is, is that the Torah's greatest idea that it brought into the world, Judaism's greatest thing, is not monotheism. The idea that there's a, only one God, but it's the idea that God is personal. That Hashem is personal. At the core of reality is something that responds to our personal existence as individuals. That's the assertion of Emunah. And it's deeply humane in all its implications. It's that we're more than just molecules, selfish genes, specks of dust in eternity. The universe isn't blind to our hopes, to our dreams, to our ideals. That when evil is committed, there's objective pain, it's real. And that when we hope and we strive to seek to build, that something within us and something beyond us is guiding us and giving us the strength not to be defeated, to continue the journey despite any setbacks and false turns and full full backs, full backs, falling down. That's the heart of Judaism. It's it's a covenant, a covenant based on love. And notoriously Christians have critiqued Judaism as a religion of law and justice rather than of love and compassion. And this is absolutely untrue. Of course, sure, Judaism has law and justice between human beings because only with law can there be a just society. And if anything, Judaism is a religion for society. But between Hashem and man, that's all love. And this is the, the metaphor of marriage. 
the Torah takes as a central metaphor for the relationship between man and Hashem. Because in Judaism, religious faith, it's not, it's not mysterious. You don't need to sacrifice your mind, jump into a void, blind faith. It's, it's just like a commitment that a person makes going into marriage. When you're pledging yourself to somebody else, so you see them, you see their body, you'll know you'll never enter their consciousness. And that will always be on your reach. But we understand that our capacity to form relationships tells us, even though we can't enter somebody else's mind, you can reach out beyond yourself. You can transcend yourself and join your life to somebody else's. Create things that exist only in the virtue of being shared. Such as trust, friendship, love. It can't exist when you're on your own. So too, even though we can never enter the consciousness of Hashem, we can still pledge ourselves to Him with faithfulness, with not listening to His voice as recorded in the Torah, and responding with our personhood. Together, we could bring into existence what neither Hashem could do on His own or what we could do on our own. A society of free people respecting one another's freedom. And this metaphor, the marriage, the relationship, that brings new life into being and allows us to experience new dimensions of the world, until we can relate to, to another human being like this through covenant, with, faith, with faithfulness, with trust, with loyalty between ourselves, we can't relate to Hashem that way either. And that's why the family becomes the birthplace of our experience of humanity in the Torah. It's the matrix which we can use as our encounter with Hashem. All of Jewish consciousness is tied to this idea of, of the strength of relationships of family. Without an ordered family, you can't order society. Without trust that we learn as children and practice in our relationships, we can't respond to the trustfulness of the universe. And now the Jewish vision is beginning to take shape. We have the individual, and we have now the concept of relationships that will eventually signal to humanity a way of extinguishing those flames that threaten the palace, that threaten the universe. This covenantal bond, this ability to form relationships, allows us to create communities, eventually societies, that recognize both independence and interdependence, and eventually leads to the greatest of human attempts to create a social order, a community. It's based on the absolute dignity of the individual, is the image of Hashem. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed it before, you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that, and listen to the other episodes, please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Podcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.